from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 13. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us body and soul from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our catechism we've been dealing with the names of our Savior We've dealt with his personal name, Jesus, that is, Savior. Joseph and Mary were instructed to call their son Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Last Sunday, we considered Jesus' official name, the Christ. That was his title, describes his office. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. He was ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to serve as our Redeemer. In him, the offices of prophet, priest, and king come together in one. This afternoon, we focus on two more names that the Bible uses to describe Jesus Christ. He's called God's only begotten Son and our Lord. When we confess Jesus to be God's only begotten Son, we focus on his identity that he alone is God's son, that Jesus has a special relationship with our Father in heaven. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we focus on his authority, that Christ has been given the glorious position of king, that he rules and he governs over all things. This has implications for us. We need to understand who Jesus is in order to understand who we are. His relationship with God helps us define our relationship with our Heavenly Father. While Jesus is the natural Son of God, we are God's adopted children. We need to understand Christ's position to understand our role in God's family. It's only when we recognize his lordship over us that we learn to serve as his disciples. And so we see that a study of the names of Jesus Christ helps us to learn about our position and our role in God's family. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. We confess Jesus as God's son and our Lord. Jesus is God's son and we are God's children Jesus is our Lord, and we are his disciples. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The Bible first refers to Christ as the only begotten Son of God in Psalm 2. It's a psalm written by David. It speaks about his coronation as king over Israel. 
celebrates his crowning as theocratic king, as king ruling in God's place. Yet Psalm 2 is at the same time a messianic psalm, speaks prophetically about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, about who Jesus is as God's Son and as our Lord. It's important for us to see this psalm in its historical context. The psalm begins with nations conspiring and peoples plotting. The kings of the earth take their stand against the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. In ancient times, the crowning of new king was seen as an opportunity for subject nations to fight to free themselves from the power of the nation that had dominion over them. It was hoped that a new, an inexperienced, and often young king would not react swiftly or strongly enough to quiet the rebellion. David actually experienced this. 2 Samuel 5 tells us that when the Philistines heard that David had replaced Saul as king, they went up in full force to search for him. 2 Samuel 8 records how David faced uprisings from the Moabites, the king of Zobah, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Formerly, King Saul had subdued these nations. But when David was newly crowned as king, all these nations rose up in rebellion against him. What we need to understand is that the rebellion against King David is more, just, more than just a rebellion against him. It was a rebellion against the Lord. This began already before man's fall into sin. When Satan led a third of the angels in a revolt against God. It's part of the struggle of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman, foretold in Genesis 3.15. Psalm 2 speaks about how Satan, the prince of darkness, riles up the nations against the Lord and against his anointed one. So what's the Lord's response to the revolt of these foreign powers? Well, Psalm 2 tells us the Lord laughs at them in derision. He scoffs at man's attempts against him. God has all of history in his hands. He has a plan for this world, and it included sending the Messiah to save his people. The Lord says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These words apply not just to David, they also apply to his son, who had come as our eternal king, to the Lord's anointed one, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, verse 7, we see the Lord's anointed king remembering his call to office. The Davidic king speaks, saying, I will tell her the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. These words apply particularly to Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God, the one who came forth from the Father to rule as Almighty King. He would put all his enemies under his footstool. He would gather all his children to him and grant them his blessings. The fact that Jesus is God's only begotten Son is clear from the New Testament. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In 1 John 4 verse 9 it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So what does it mean when we confess Jesus Christ to be the only begotten son of God? When you examine the Bible, you see that God actually has other children. Luke 3 gives a genealogy of Jesus Christ. His lineage is traced back through the generations, all the way back to Adam. What's interesting is how the genealogy ends. It ends by calling Adam the Son of God. And in the New Testament, we also see believers being called God's sons. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. God has many sons and daughters. But Jesus is the only begotten Son. The Bible uses this term to distinguish Jesus Christ from the rest of God's children. The fact that Jesus is the only begotten Son should not be that hard to understand when we look at our families. In our human families, there are two kinds of children. Parents can receive children naturally. Happens when boys and girls are born into a family. But it's not the only way that we can receive children. Parents can also adopt children. They can take children who do not have parents to care for them and make them part of their family. Now there's differences between natural children and adopted children. It's only the children born in a family that are begotten of their parents. Their parents pass on their genes to these children. Often these children will look somewhat like their parents and they'll share certain traits with them. It's different with adopted children. They can learn much from their parents. They can take on many of their perspectives and their habits. But in looks and personality, they'll often be different. From this we see that Jesus alone is the eternal, the natural Son of God. He has a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus shares God's nature. He is divine. He is God. The author of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews 1. He quotes from Psalm 2, and he applies it to God's Son, Jesus Christ. He says that God's Son is the radiance of the glory of God. As God is glorious, so is Christ his Son. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is also the exact imprint of his nature. Just as a coin bears the imprint of a king's face, so Jesus bears God's imprint or image. The Son bears God's nature because he himself is God. 
Beloved, it's really important for us to confess and believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. Our very salvation depends on this fact. If Jesus is not God's Son, He cannot be our Savior. It's because He is God's only begotten Son that He's able to save us from our sins. We've already learned in the Catechism that no person who is merely a man could save us. For to pay the price for our sins, Jesus would have to be able to bear God's terrible wrath. He'd have to suffer hellish agony while hanging on the cross. It's only because he's God's son that he was able to do that. Our catechism emphasizes that our relationship with God is dependent on the fact that Christ is God's son. It teaches, we are children of God by grace, for Christ's sake. We're adopted as God's children through the work of God's only begotten Son. It's His redeeming work by which He has restored us in our relationship with God. It's through Christ we learn to know God as our Father in heaven. It's through grace that we've been set apart as God's dearly loved children. John makes this clear to us in 1 John 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's because of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ that He's adopted us to be His children. It's a wonderful privilege. It's an undeserved blessing. For without Christ, we would continue to walk according to our fallen nature. By nature, we're corrupt and inclined to all evil. Yet Christ has ransomed us from all this. He's restored us to the position of being God's children. That means that as members of God's family, we can share in all the blessings that God's Son, our Savior, has earned for us. In our first point, we've seen that Jesus is God's Son and that we're God's children brings us to our second point, in which we'll see that Jesus is our Lord, and we are His disciples. Psalm 2 not only identifies Christ as God's only begotten Son, the main point that it makes is that He is our Lord. When nations rage and peoples plot against the Lord and His anointed, the Lord laughs and holds them in derision. There's a reason why. In verse 6, the Lord says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, in the first place, this applied to David. The Lord anointed him as king over Israel. For many years, David had to wait to be king, for Saul still reigned over the land. But in due time, the Lord made David king. In Psalm 2, the Lord promised, saying, Ask of me, And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God was indeed faithful to his promises. Under David and later under Solomon, Israel experienced a golden age. The surrounding nations were subdued. They paid tribute. God's people enjoyed a time of peace and of great prosperity. Yet Psalm 2 does not find its fulfillment in 
David, for he died. God had promised that one of his sons would always sit on the throne. And while that happened, not all of David's sons were faithful to God as he was. They led God's people astray. They served other gods. They did not keep the Lord's commandments. The time came when David's sons no longer reigned on the throne in Israel. God's people were taken off into captivity, and other nations ruled over them. It showed their great need for the Messiah to come. Jesus Christ has come as the great son of David. He came to serve as our eternal king. We know Jesus did not come to establish a political kingdom. Instead, he came to redeem his people from their sins and misery, to bring them back into communion with his Father in heaven. Jesus accomplished this through his death and resurrection. He died to pay for our sins. He rose to grant us new life in him. So why do we call Jesus our Lord? The Catechism explains, because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Christ has paid the price for our sins. By doing so, he has redeemed us. He paid the ransom price. And the result is he has freed us from our sins and from the power of the devil. Christ has claimed us as his own possession. Think again, beloved, about a king going off to war. When he wins the battle against a foreign king that was oppressing him, he frees all of his people from that king's dominion. Perhaps they'd been enslaved and were in exile. Perhaps they'd remained in their own country, but they had to pay all kinds of tribute. Yet when their king won the victory, he freed them. Well, beloved, that's what Christ has done for us. He has claimed us back from the mastery of the devil. He has given us freedom and life. He has made us his own possession. He will continue to care for us and provide all our needs. So when did Christ become our Lord and King? Well, he won the victory when he suffered and died on the cross. That's when he paid for all our sins. Yet Christ's victory is made evident by his resurrection and by his ascension into heaven. In Romans 1 verse 4, Paul says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection testified to the fact that Christ has triumphed as our victorious king. This was confirmed by Christ's ascension into heaven. At his ascension, Christ said to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In Ephesians 1, Paul speaks about how God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
Here we see the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy of Psalm 2 taking place. God installed his anointed son on the throne in heaven. He gave him power over all. So what does this mean for this world? And what does it mean for us? We can take instruction from the last verses of Psalm 2. David says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest to be angry you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In these words, we see a call for the kings and rulers of the earth to submit to the authority of Christ. All are called to serve the Lord with fear, to kiss the Son, lest he become angry and destroy them. Many today do not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and King. The general perspective of the world is that I'm in charge of my own life and nobody else can tell me what to do. Instead of respecting the Lordship of Christ, many live in active rebellion against Him. In Romans 1, Paul explains that although people knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. They suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they indulged in all manner of wickedness. Even though they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continued to do them, but they also approved of others who practiced them. How about us, beloved? We confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Does that show in your life? It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord. It's another to truly believe it and to live out of it. Like many in the world, we at times struggle to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submitting to another requires us to deny our own will, to take direction from someone else. It's hard. Our natural inclination is to do what we want submission to Christ as Lord is difficult. But this is what Christ requires of us. We read together from Matthew 16 about the time when Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus agreed that this was true. He began to explain to his disciples what this meant for him and for them. He explained how he would have to suffer and die. That's not at all what the disciples wanted to hear. They had their hearts set on being great in the kingdom Jesus was going to establish on earth. Peter said to Jesus, Far be it from you, O Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus rebuked Peter because he was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus began to explain what it meant for his disciples to submit to his lordship. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here we see what's required of us if we confess Jesus to be our Lord, to be his disciples, his followers. We need in the first place to deny ourselves. This is counter to the message of today. The world tells us, be yourself, do what you want. But the Bible teaches that we have to say no to our sinful desires. It teaches us about the need to make sacrifices in our service of Christ. At times, the men in our congregation are called to serve in office when they would prefer not to have to bear that burden. There's times when our young people really desire a boyfriend or girlfriend, yet have to deny themselves from going out with someone we're attracted to because that person does not share our faith. The world presents us with so many temptations, not just in doing sinful things, but also in mismanaging our time and our money. Are you a good steward of the gifts that the Lord has given to you? You spend time building a relationship with God by reading from His Word and praying? Beloved, how much of your time do you waste on screen time, simply indulging yourself? Do you see your wages as your money? Or do you recognize that this earth and all that is in it belongs to God? Do you give to support the ministry of the gospel and so that the poor and the needy are well supplied? How much of your money do you waste just on yourself? What I'm asking, beloved, is do you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all of your life? Jesus not only called us to deny ourselves, he also called us to take up our cross and follow him. We use those words to take up our cross more often. But what does that really mean? Christ took up his cross because he was willing to suffer and die for our sins at Golgotha. He carried his cross until he collapsed under it, and Simon was compelled to carry it for him. So what's it mean for us to take up our cross? Some Christians speak of ongoing illness or of mental health struggles as their cross to bear. But taking up your cross is taking action. It's not suffering passively. Taking up your cross means you're willing to do what God requires of you. We take up our cross when we care for the sick, when we comfort the afflicted, when we give sacrificially in support of those in need. We bear the cross when we share Christ with someone who may reject the message and despise the messenger. 
To bear the cross is to face the loss of anything that might be precious to us. Our time, our money, our comfort, our relationships. We bear our cross when we sacrifice something precious to us for Christ's sake. Remember, beloved, Christ gave his life for us on the cross. And remember, we're called to follow in his footsteps. To get out of our comfortable, easy chairs and be active in doing what God commands us to do. The reason Christ appointed office bearers in the church was not to do all the work. Ephesians 4.12 says that they were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And James teaches us that faith without works is dead. After commanding us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, Jesus says, follow me. When Jesus first said that to the 12 disciples, they left behind their homes and their businesses, and they literally followed him. For about three years, they went everywhere where Jesus went. They traveled throughout the land, walking and talking with their master. Part of this was an apprenticeship program. Jesus was teaching them about who he was and why he had come as Messiah. He was preparing them to serve as apostles, to spread the gospel after his death and resurrection. Yet take note, the disciples followed their master. When Jesus commands us to follow him, he's summoning us to follow in his footsteps. He's calling us not only to believe in him, but also to obey his commands. We are to live boldly, courageously, as Christians in the midst of an ungodly society. Why do you really care what others in society think about you? You're not accountable to them. You're only accountable to God, and God is the ultimate judge. Love Him, serve Him with your whole life. Volunteer at places like Union Gospel Mission or at Bibles for Mission. Use the opportunities that you have to tell others about your wonderful Savior. Be active in Bible study. Use it as an opportunity to rebuild strained relationships and to support and encourage other members of God's family. Beloved, are you willing to take a stand with Christ our Lord? Are you willing to follow in his footsteps by living sacrificially as he did? Are you willing to live actively as one of his disciples? even if doing so pushes you out of your comfort zone or results in you suffering ridicule or hardship for Christ's sake? Jesus warned in Matthew seven twenty one, saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so we see, beloved, what it means to confess Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God and as our Lord. 
Learning to know Christ's identity and his authority helps us to recognize who we are as God's adopted children and what our task is as his disciples. It is a wonderful privilege to be God's child, to belong to his family. It's a great responsibility to submit to Christ's authority and serve as his disciples. Yet as a people of God, we are happy to submit our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. For we know of his great love, how he gave up his life for us. Out of thankfulness, let us devote our hearts and lives to him. Amen.